to be clear, I would not help extraterrestrial beings destroy know, our planet. Man. I don't know. I just think they would be better at running it potentially because it, it's hard to get worse than we are right now. So that would be my spin on that. I feel book. like most of human history is probably examples of worse leadership. Yum. Yeah. But maybe. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for politically eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, where are we going to start today? On today's show, all the takeaways from this past Tuesday's big day of primaries and the quick demise of the Biden administration's much-criticized disinformation board. We'll hear from Ravi on a wild idea he's been eager to pitch. And then we'll turn to the exciting and definitely not complicated or boring world of private equity. And after all that, we'll get into the real shit that's going on in this country. Congress is talking about UFOs, sorry, UAPs, and we're weighing in. But first things first, Netflix is telling its employees to chill. The streaming giant released a memo on company culture this week telling its employees they may have to work on content they disagree with. And if they don't like that, they can go work at Hulu. Onlookers are pointing to this as a direct response to the Dave Chappelle controversy from last year, but some say it could also have something to do with corporate activism as a whole. So Ricky, uh, let's start off with what was in this memo in, just in general. Yeah, so this is the first update to company uh, culture policy since 2017 from Netflix, and essentially um, their spokespeople are saying that this is a way for potential employees to decide if this is the right company for them. And I'll just read a segment which is about essentially our artistic expression and diversity of opinions at the company. Quote, entertaining the world is an amazing opportunity and also a challenge because viewers have very different tastes and points of view. Not everyone will like or agree with everything on our service. We support artistic expression of the creators we work with. We program for a diversity of audiences and tastes, and we let viewers decide what's appropriate for them versus having Netflix censor specific artists and voices. And they also warn employees that they might work on something that they perceive to be, quote, harmful, and that that's essentially just what comes with entertaining a broad diversity of audiences. And I think that that's a really fair kind of analysis and probably a nail in the coffin for corporate activism and the idea that employees can can walk out and change what's happening. And these institutions like Netflix or Disney or all these other companies that have like serious cultural sway. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that uh, founder of Netflix and CEO, uh, co-CEO Reed Hastings is a donor uh, to this company. Mm -hmm. So I just want to disclose that as we talk about this. But I agree with this move. I think that this is a long time coming. And I think we were heading towards a world where if any one person within a company took offense to content, um, it felt to me like that would be enough to to take something mm -hmm. out. And I think what they're saying is, look, like comedy's edgy, you know, even drama's edgy. Like there's almost an, no movie you could find that's interesting in any way that doesn't have something controversial in it. And so to me, I think this is any any kind of artistic institution like Netflix has to just draw a line in the sand and say, you know what, like we're not gonna. Like, I, I do think there is a line still. I, I think a lot of people are interpreting this, say, like, anything goes. But I mm -hmm. think they're basically saying that line is way further than, uh, like, than a lot of our employees would want mm -hmm. it to be. And we mm -hmm. just want to be clear with you about where we're going. Yeah, I'm not sure how much it has to do with uh, corporate activism. I think it's really about Netflix has become the home 
of like stand-up comedy. Like it used to be back in the day, 10, 15 years ago, if you had an HBO special, you were like a real comedian. Now it's like, you gotta have a Netflix special. And they know the power they have with that community and they wanna empower that community to, to stay there, to stay at their home. Because you know HBO has pretty extreme content. If, if Netflix starts censoring people like Dave Chappelle, HBO's gonna be like, well, you guys can come back over here and we'll put your specials out. So I think they really understand how much sway they have with the, the community of, of comedians. And I think they wanna make sure that those comedians feel comfortable coming to them to be able to just talk about whatever they want, you know? It's almost analogous to the Rogan Spotify situation too of just like creating a home. And I think it also creates an important precedent where in the beginning of streaming services, they were kind of just homes for, for products and homes for shows and movies. But now as they produce more and more things too, they there there seems to be a sense that they were taking a stand on certain things or endorsing certain things because they were produced by them. But yep. this is essentially saying, we're gonna have stuff that we disagree with, that some of our audience might disagree with. We're not necessarily endorsing it. It's not necessarily the company opinion. And so you kind of have to just participate in entertaining the entire body of this country or the world, essentially, at this point. And it's an interesting balance because a lot of the content on Netflix is still relatively left leaning, culturally mm -hmm. speaking, not really politically speaking, but culturally speaking, it's pretty left leaning on there. I don't I don't, I don't see a lot of like conservative content on there, right. but maybe mm -hmm. this is the beginning of that, that they'll do more stuff like that. Yeah, I, I want to live in a world where we can identify the politics of our content. Yeah, of course. I, <laughs> I, in a weird way, it's easier to identify left leaning content than conservative content content yeah. partially because there is so much more left-leaning content but also like what does it mean to be conservative content i think uh, by and large because uh people on the left have dominated uh at least the artistic media yeah. forever basically For a long time. <laughs> uh means that what what is what is a conservative show maybe yellowstone I, you know people yeah, argue, uh, argue you know that, yeah. it's like you know protecting your land making sure californians don't come <laughs> <The> transplants uh, <laughs> but you know you did mention like this sort of defense of comedy i do think that's where this has started and i think co-ceo ted sarandos i think views himself as almost like a fellow traveler with comedians yeah. and i think that's where i think they're taking like some of the hardest use cases which is comedy which i think is where there's so much up to interpretation and you have to give so much leeway and I think they're starting with that and saying, well, we're just going to, this is going to be the starting point of this conversation. It does remind me, though, there was this case of, a couple of years ago of Basecamp, where the CEO of this company, Basecamp, which is a project management tool, laid down the line and said, essentially, you can't have political discussions on our company channels. Mm -hmm. And he said, and if you don't like it, his co-founder said, if you don't like it, you can leave. And a third of the company <laughs> left. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen in Netflix, but that was notable. And then they, they kind of had to walk it a little bit back and yeah. have to go through a lot of soul searching and all that. But I suspect that Netflix went about this in a more thoughtful, thoughtful way. They, they had circulated this policy and gotten, I think, something like a thousand plus comments from mm -hmm. their employees before they've released it. So I do think I, I would be shocked if you had that kind of reaction from their employees here. It is important to point out some people are saying that, you know, they made this announcement and then very soon after they ended up laying off about 150 staffers because there have been some um, some some issues with revenue at Netflix. And so some people say, well, maybe they just made this announcement. So maybe some of those people would just like quit beforehand. And I mean, there's no real evidence to that. But I mean, that has been floated as a, as a possibility. I, I could be convinced that there's a connection, at least in terms of their swagger on this issue. It's like in a world where you don't need you know, you're not fighting to keep all your people, mm -hmm. whereas actually you actually need to let people go. And they were very clear in their company statement that they were not letting people go because of performance, but because they're, of their revenue issues. Mm -hmm. There there could be a little bit of psychology at work here where they're like, I, we don't need to really fight to keep all of our people right now. We actually have the opposite problem. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, something to keep monitoring. 
Okay, well, let's move on to the results of Tuesday's primary races. After voters in five states cast their ballots, former President Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot himself, but in many ways, he still kind of won. Ravi, uh, talk to us a little bit about how these contests ended up turning out. Yeah, we last talked about these, uh, you know, the, the primaries after the Ohio election, essentially saying, well, how much is the Trump effect? How much is it worth, both mm -hmm. in terms of the candidates he endorses, but also how he shapes the narrative within these primaries? And his his record so far is pretty strong. Uh, in his Senate races, he's 4-0 right now in his endorsements. In House races, he's 55-1. to 1. And in other statewide races, he's 9-2. And as I talked about after Ohio, it's not just his candidates who win, but the fact that his signature issue, which is uh, elections and yeah. sort of the denial of the outcome of 2020 and, you know, I think certain policies and attitudes that he wants moving forward in future elections, that certainly wins. Because even in cases like the uh, the Pennsylvania Senate primary for the GOP, where the outcome is still to be determined, there will be a victor who believes in uh, the so-called big lie. Uh, there's one particular candidate that I'm focused on coming out of this within the GOP primary, and then one I'm focused in on, uh, and this is the GOP primary for governor. Then I'll get to some of the Democrats that I think that are notable in a second, but let's focus on the GOP for a second. There's this guy named Doug Mastriano, who's a state senator who attended the January 6th events uh, and has been vocal about the election being stolen. And there's video footage that showed him walking towards the Capitol shortly after the protesters or whatever we want to call them removed a police barricade blocking them. Now, he claims he never entered the Capitol. And after Biden's victory was certified in Pennsylvania, he introduced a resolution that would have had the legislature overturn the results and appoint electors who would declare Trump the winner. Notable that the Pennsylvania governor appoints the secretary of state who runs the elections. His opponent will be uh, Attorney General of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, who interestingly ran ads people think were in support of Mastriano, meaning he wanted Mastriano to, as, be, his to be his opponent. Versus, oh, wow. Interesting. Uh, that is the speculation. So. Hmm. You know, I think this is notable, and, and and I'm curious to think what you think about this. Like, we don't support candidates on this because we're a C3, but this does seem to be an interesting race in the sense that the, the Democratic challenger wants him. Well, that uh, was, it reminds me back, like, when Donald Trump was running in many, he was telling, like, people, like, support Bernie. I want you to support Bernie. Maybe he was saying that because he thought Bernie would be easier to beat than say A lot of people like say Biden. that about Trump. A lot of Democrats, I knew, said yeah, that about that Trump we were saying himself. that about Trump. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is probably demonstrative of the fact that there's a lot of people on the right or that are Republican voters that just don't really, this narrative doesn't really appeal to them. And so they might just default to a Democrat with that as the option coming from the right. Um, and I, I mean, I think that polling shows that there's a pretty large faction of Republicans or at least independent right-leaning people who just aren't interested in that narrative. So yep. that's, I mean, it seems like a potentially effective strategy on Shapiro's point. Yeah, I think the, the big dynamic to watch in these races is going to be the disaffection with Democrats, which, you know, they're they're in a historically bad territory of public perceptions. How is that going to go up against GOP primaries where they're picking candidates who have these opinions that are going to be tough to sell? So, mm -hmm. like, are people going to be making distinctions to say, all right, I don't agree with you on the election but I'm so pissed off at the Democrats that it doesn't matter. Are they going to buy into a national narrative or are they going to really pay attention to the individual positions of some of these candidates? And I think one interesting test case for this is going to be John Fetterman, who won the uh, Democratic primary in Pennsylvania 
days after suffering a stroke. And we don't know who his opponent is going to be yet because that the GOP primary is going to go to a recount in all likelihood. Uh, but Fetterman is a hard guy to place. So there's this Atlantic article by David Graham that is titled, uh, Fetterman wins on vibes. Now, this is a little bit cringe of an article in the sense that basically Graham is saying, look, it's not about his positions. It's the fact this guy's 6'8", he's bald, he's got a goatee, and he's got a hoodie, and he talks and looks different than a lot of uh, Democrats do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he beat out this guy named Connor Lamb, who, as Graham points out, is almost like a guy coming out of the DSCC factory for candidates. Marine, <laughs> former prosecutor, yeah. handsome, moderate. And Fetterman is kind of hard to pin. His... his his uh, slogan is workers, wages, and weed. And he voted for Bernie Sanders and he backed Bernie Sanders in 2016. He has been rather slippery about his like beliefs on socialism yeah. and the squad and all that. Yeah, yeah. But he looks like this working class blue collar guy, but he got a master's from Harvard and his dad was a wealthy businessman. I'm very curious to see how he's going to play out over the next few months in this race and whether he, he tests that theory of like the vibes matter or whether your policies matter, yeah. or actually your bi your actual bio matters. Well, vibes uh, you know. matter, Robbie. Yeah. Vibes really, really <laughs> it's matter. It's cringe, but it may be true that the vibes went I out. Mean, I think yeah. it's always been like that. I think politics has always been about image and about like the way a person comes off versus what they're actually saying. I mean, look at Hillary Clinton. I mean, a lot of a lot of what she suffered from was not being authentic enough. And I think that that's a big thing that people are looking for, especially today. I mean, it wasn't all victories for uh, Trump-supported candidates. Uh, we all know, we, we saw the fall of, of, just, of just, you know, this... There was so much focus on this guy, Madison Cawthorn, down in uh, yeah. North Carolina. And I think Cawthorn is an interesting case because Trump really tried last minute. He was like, please don't give up on this guy. Please. This, this is one of the good ones. At least that's what Trump was saying. And it was just too much. The, all the scandals, everything that was going on with him. And it really brings into question, like, how young should we, you know, be like, how young can can a congressman really be and, and get? So I would say overcorrect on age. Like, like we have too many way. Like, I, I don't know what the average is. The last time I checked, but yeah. I suspect that there's the average way more age, people. Yeah, like, I'm fine with it. Yeah. I think Geriatric. that voters, I trust mm. voters to decide if someone's mature enough. And this is a an example where they gave someone a shot, and that turned out not to really be the case. And right. so they've revoked that opportunity, but. Um, in terms of the Trump front, one last point that I think will be interesting is to see how many people kind of take the Yunkin approach of yeah. not really not really embracing him and not really completely staving him off, because I think that turned out to be probably the safest way to play that election. And I think at least in more purple states, that could yeah. be really effective. Well, the one thing Yunkin had the benefit of, and you and I have talked about this offline before, is that he didn't have to go through a traditional primary. So mm -hmm. he didn't have to kiss the ring in a way that a lot of these candidates do. I think it it will be tough for people to walk back support of Trump. And also a lot of these people have future aspirations. I think like backing away from Trump could send a signal that could, you know, cause them trouble in the future with Trump. Mm -hmm. Although Trump has shown through Vance a willingness to forgive people who are willing to come back to him. Yeah, so that's very true. Ted yeah. Cruz is an example of that. Well, it's going to be with some interesting races. We'll definitely have to keep an eye on them. So let's move on to what's going on with the disinformation board. The Biden administration is already shutting down its disinformation governance board, a short lived project whose terrible name and controversial leader made it more of a lightning rod and a laughing stock than a useful tool for homeland security. Ricky, I know you were a huge fan of this board just in the in the first place. So what do you have to say about what's going on here? Um, well, so what we know so far is that the Biden administration is just pausing this effort, but mm -hmm. it seems like it probably won't continue, at least in any sort of iteration as we've seen it. Um, and this comes after the Ministry of Truth sort of accusations of questions about whether the government should be trusted to 
kind of parse out truth from from misinformation or disinformation. And so this story was broken by Taylor Lorenz in the Washington Post. That's when we first heard it. Obviously, we know that these are a lot of topics that I'm just a huge fan of. Uh, this is like an intersection here. Taylor Lorenz yeah. disinformation. <laughs> Um, and Perfect so, story for you. So the headline, I just, the framing of this is a little bit bothersome to me. The headline is how the Biden administration let right-wing attacks derail its disinformation efforts. And the entire article just praises Nina Jankowicz, who is the proposed head who has resigned, even though the pause is in place. <laughs> um, and it doesn't discuss what these efforts were, what, why the right wing derailed this mm -hmm. and whether there's any validity to that criticism. Mm -hmm. It doesn't discuss the fact that she thought that the Hunter Biden laptop was disinformation. It doesn't uh, discuss the fact that she was a proponent of the Steele dossier. And so her record is very questionable, not to mention her TikTok videos, which yeah. are <laughs> probably more questionable. But um, I mean, I take issue with the framing of this, but I think, you know, it's not about a right wing like effort to derail some sort of great government program, I think this is a response to the fact that the public pretty generally was like, we just don't like this idea, period. Yeah. And so the DHS had to walk it back already and said that it has no operational authority or capability. So it just was unclear yeah. what the point of it really was. So I think this is this is kind of a success, and in we, my opinion. We finished, and just for context for new listeners, we've covered this disinformation board previously where we pointed out some of these problems. And like per the headline, I'm a you know longtime Democratic operative uh, in my life, and I you know through that segment I expressed problems with especially her as a leader for this you know saying that she was a questionable hire. So I think like Taylor Lorenz's framing of this as only a right wing criticism. Like I think it's possible that there can be disingenuous critiques coming from the mm -hmm. right, while there's also valid criticism that should have slowed this thing down. My opinion was the stated aims seem to make some sense to me, especially as they related to foreign interference and foreign, like, you know, foreign governments sowing disinformation. But as as we discussed, like her as a leader didn't make sense and yeah. they probably should have clarified more what the purpose of this was. But yeah. we did end the segment by saying she wasn't gonna last really yeah. long. And so I'm really proud of us for that prediction. <laughs> and even recently she said, just one more point, that verified Twitter users or like kind of authenticated Twitter users should be able to edit other people's tweets if they are if they're false and so she's getting she was getting involved in the domestic sphere too it wasn't yeah. just keeping it like international and so i just think that this got super messy and the administration is right to pause it and yeah. i'd be surprised if it actually continued yeah i definitely don't want somebody being able to edit my tweets like that doesn't make any sense the scariest <laughs> thing about all of this to me is that it seems like the main thing that really tanked Nina Jankowitz's career here was her TikToks. And <laughs> as a as a TikToker, it's like I need to be careful. I need to be careful. Well, that's what got you here. So it's the it, opposite it, of it, your story. It is yeah. the opposite. I yeah. the opposite case. But there's some stuff. If you really go down there, it may have not. <laughs> I may not have had this job. And if 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 you really did some more research on me, but but uh, <laughs> something to note. Something to note. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, yeah. uh, well, let's take a little bit of a halftime break here, um, Ravi. You have a new uh, segment that you want to introduce us yeah. to, so an idea that you would like to pitch us on. I'm very curious as to hear what this idea is. All right. So the background here is that there are often a lot of ideas I have. I put them in a notebook and I'm like, ah, I don't know. Like, I'm not actually 100% sure about this, but like the, the engagement with the idea itself could tell us something about where we should go on policy. Mm -hmm. And I was reading the other day. So like 
full disclosure, I'm not sure I'm committed to this yet, this idea. And that'll be what the segment is. I'm kind of working it out with you guys. Okay, okay. And so I just want to preface this, especially I'm about to talk about education. So some of the things I'm going to say may seem like a contradiction with the fact that I was a school principal who believes in public education. Mm -hmm. I still believe that. But, you know, I ran into some of my students this weekend, and then I was looking at some numbers in New York where we spend over $30,000 per student per year in New York City. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of money. And I was starting to think, well, like we're all thinking about the markets these days because we're, you know, we're all losing so much money. I'm like, well, in a normal 10-year span, 20-year span, you know, you make compound interest. And I was like, mm -hmm. how much money would a student get at the end of their experience if we just gave them the money that we spend on public education? And I was like, essentially, they get $400,000 per student over the course of a, of a student's experience is what they get. Now, that's Including not- Including college? This is not college, right? So this is K to twelve. Just K to twelve. Now okay. you can put college on top okay, of these numbers I'm about to share. So I put these into a calculator uh, with a four percent return, which is pretty modest. Uh, I know it's not modest right now because everybody's <laughs> negative. They would make almost a million dollars if you if you held that money for them by the time they're twenty five, right? Hmm. And if you waited till they're thirty, it's one point three million dollars. Now, if you assume six percent growth, it's one point one million by twenty five and 1.7 million by 30. And so I'm wondering like, well, if you gave people this option, like if we're being honest, comparing the experience and their livelihood from going through the K to 12 system versus homeschooling or you know whatever they wanna do, are they better off with $1.7 million, $1.3 million, $1 million over that experience? I think it's worth asking. So you want to replace K through 12 schooling with just giving one, the family once again i'm money. not saying i want it i'm saying like <laughs> we we wish you to explore this idea and say if and i'm not this public school should still exist but it's yeah. like you should have the option we by the way people already have the option of whether they want to go to public school or not yeah, this is course. just saying yeah. you can we're actually giving you the ability to make the cost benefit analysis who is you i would say the parents? The parents yeah and i think so then the, why wouldn't people just have like a million kids that just never well, I think that's why I think the holding the money is is a probably an important mechanism. And that's why I'm working this out is like we should probably have income caps because I don't want to give this money to people who are going to otherwise go to private schools anyway. Right. But then so, so then you're going to take low income people and just make them not be able to read or do basic arithmetic. Well, essentially. <laughs> well, I think part of our problem is a lot of kids can't read when they go through the public school system. I like the voucher system where this money has to be put elsewhere to like a, an institution that better suits the parents' needs or for homeschooling to offset right. the costs of that. Like I think that makes more sense rather than just cash because I think we're probably pretty universally on the page that like being going to kindergarten is probably a good thing. So let's thing workshop a couple of <laughs> ideas. People. Let's say we start we start this in sixth grade. So let's say we start mm -hmm. it in middle school. So we can assume any public school system worth anything should have a kid reading and doing basic work by the time they're in sixth grade. Now, as a former principal of middle schoolers, the system did not send us students uh, often that that could do that. There are a lot of students. Our average student were students were two grade levels behind on average getting into the fifth grade, and some could not read coming into the fifth grade. So, so let's say we we start in sixth grade, we give the parents the options to do it. There's some kind of homeschooling requirement to it, and there's an income cap. I'm okay, starting to get into this if idea. If there's a homeschool requirement to it, I'm almost there with it. The only problem is you're giving them this money, and you're telling them they can do whatever they want with when it when they're thirty. Which imagine if somebody held that money for you when you're 30, you know what I'm saying? So they have to put it. Well, this is the workshopping of it, right? Let's say we put it in an account and this gets it away from the parents. The parents can't control that money. It's the kid's money when they're 30, 
you know? But mm. how can you consent to that when you're in sixth grade? Yeah, well, you can't, but you can't consent to homeschool either or your parents sending you to the, you know, they make all those decisions yeah, anyway, like, right? I don't know if I trust people What's to be to responsible enough for this. I like the, the voucher system. I think that's just- For a brand new car. But when they're 30, they des they deserve to make that choice, you know? Now, we should also put in place a restriction against borrowing against that money too. So we got to make sure that we don't like put that in a bank account and allow people to use that. What You know, we're about to talk about private equity. There's a lot of you know, shady stuff happening around here. Are you going to give it you to know? them in Bitcoin? Well, they can, it'll be interesting hopefully if we right treat now. it, hopefully not right now. <laughs> we could treat it like a 401k, which at the moment I don't believe, can you use Bitcoin in a 401k? But let's pretend no, like, and I some, so. And I feel like there was news about that recently. Let's put, some, guy, let's, no. let's put some restrictions on it. We're gonna be talking about total stock market index, bonds, or just straight savings interest rates. And they have to put it in that. Like yeah. They can't just use it for whatever. Can't use it until well, then, you're Okay, well that's, yeah. that's reasonable, I don't know. I'll have to think. Imagine about you're it. you're about thirty. Imagine yeah. if you had one point seven million dollars. I wouldn't be doing well. that. Would be crazy. I, I, you know, yeah. but I wouldn't even like know what one point seven even one point seven million is if I didn't go to like school. I, well, I think like <laughs> I think that we have Just different levels of faith happening. in our public school system. Like, no, I mean I don't really either. I'm <laughs> all for saying here's here's the amount of tax money that would have been spent on your kid if you want to bring it to a charter school, if you want to apply it to a private school tuition, if you want to use it to offset the cost of homeschooling, go for it. Like right. I'm for that. I just don't think that giving people money is, is going to be the answer. This is like a subtle negotiation tactic to make you all pro voucher, which is to be like <laughs> I always this have is been, such a crazy record. idea. <laughs> that you're just like, oh yeah, vouchers sound reasonable compared to this. Now, to be clear, I'm not sold on this. I just wanted to talk to you guys mm, about okay. it. That's what I'm gonna do every week. I'm gonna bring stuff to you. This is just the starting They're always point gonna be like it. this? I mean, probably more extreme than this, but uh, this was uh -huh. just the first idea that I had. So. I'd, I'd rather just Andrew Yang give me the $1,000 a month and I just, I'll just roll with that. But you know? this is kind of universal basic income. Now it does come with a trade-off. I have to admit, but there's like an, a proliferation of online learning. So there's a lot of trade-offs. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, to be continued, I can I can see the the judgment coming from our producers <laughs> behind the camera. So we're gonna keep going. Somebody's gonna have fun splicing this and coming after me at some point. Yeah, but oh, yeah. yeah, this is gonna get used against you. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that involve a lot of money, the growing dominance of private equity is not exactly public knowledge. For the most part, giant firms like Blackstone, KKR, CVC, Carlyle Group, these aren't household names, but you'd recognize a lot of the companies they played a part in killing. Toys R Us, Radio Shack, Deadspin, Payless, the list goes on. These firms wield a lot of influence in the American economy, but most people only have a passing understanding of what private equity even is. So Robbie, let's start there. What are these firms and how do they operate? So these are basically financial conglomerates and they're an alternative form of financing away from the public market. So the name private equity, you know, kind of gives that away and basically funds and investors directly invest in companies. And a lot of times they do this, this thing called leveraged buyouts where they use, you know, debt to assume control of a company and make certain changes to those companies. And these are mega institutions that are growing dramatically, which is why we're talking about it. Uh, they managed $7.3 trillion in assets in 2020. That's roughly wow. the value of Apple, Microsoft, and Tesla combined. One in 14 workers in America owe their paycheck to some kind of company controlled by private equity. And just to give you the idea of the diversity of these companies, like these companies like Blackstone, if you've ever heard of these, which not to be confused with BlackRock, they own things and one private equity company could own everything from mortgage lending companies, infrastructure, TV and film studios, even the rights to artists' music. Uh, they And then they can have controlling stakes or some kinds of stakes in entertainment companies, pharma, even Bumble 
um, has a relationship with private equity and the investors in these things are like the pretty big institutions often like public uh, pension funds, corporate pension funds, insurance companies, high net worth individuals, family offices, endowments, sovereign wealth funds, funds of funds, just rich people. So you get the picture. This is a big part of our economy and it goes from everything to the companies that we interact with to now the housing market where they're scooping up real estate all around the country and, and are playing a big part in the escalation of costs for all of us, including our rents and the cost of buying a house. And so it, it should be more of a focus of our attention. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. One of the criticisms of these private equity firms is that sometimes they get involved with these companies. Many of these companies are struggling and they don't really focus on how to make the companies be as you know good as they can possibly be. They just focus on getting as much money as they can out of those companies at a certain time. And then a lot of these companies end up going bankrupt. There's actually a quote from Josh Kosman, the author of The Buyout of America. And he basically said, most of the time, private equity firms, I do not believe they're trying to drive companies into bankruptcy, but it happens enough of the time to be disturbing. Yeah. Let me, let me walk through, I think, some of the pros and cons for private equity. And I'll start at the investor level, right? So if you're an investor, you like private equity because it's liquidity, like i.e. you have access to financing to buy shit, basically. It, venture capital is a form of private equity, so it's a way to like get companies started and scale early. Uh, and these are also delisted from the stock markets, which means that you don't have to worry about quarterly earnings and all the compliance that comes, or a lot of the compliance that comes with being in the public markets. Now, the disadvantage to the investor is it's really difficult to liquidate these, meaning to buy and sell these because they're not on the public market. Uh, and the pricing, there's like pricing asymmetries to use jargon, meaning like because it's not a public market, I can tell you one price, I could tell somebody else price, that lack of transparency creates like what they call arbitrage, you know, meaning like people can take advantage of the differences in that information. And the rights of shareholders in these companies both the private equity companies and sometimes the things that they own are determined on a case by case basis. So once again, there's like a tremendous inequality. So I could be like, hey, I'm gonna give you this shareholder right and I can give you something else. Now that's just the people investing in these companies, never mind society, right? Like I'm not an investor in PE, so I'm more concerned about like what's happening to us as a society here. And this is where I think the case to me is pretty strong against these institutions. Now, what we, how we, what we do about that, I think, is a bigger question. But we have to ask ourselves some questions. How much risk do we want in the system? And this is where private equity is dangerous: is they have a huge debt to, you know, to cash ratio. And when we went out of the uh, financial crisis, we we basically regulated banks, saying, you know what, you need to hold more assets and cash on your books relative to how much you're lending uh, and how much you're borrowing. Right. And that's not true of private equity companies. They could do what they want. So when we head into recessions like this, they are particularly at risk. They're both at risk, but they're also, uh, as we learned in the last financial crisis, they're equipped to scoop up cheap stuff too, yeah. uh, which I think is the other problem here. Like either way, it's a problem. Either they're a huge systemic risk or they take advantage of people in hardship, like people who go through foreclosure, companies that get cheaper, et cetera. And then they, they, they concentrate power. And that's my biggest criticism of private equity is like, I'm not sure I want these huge companies owning so much of our society. Uh, and so that's where I start to get a little bit worried about where we're heading. And most people don't know the names of these companies. They don't know the CEOs of these companies. Most people could say, oh, I know uh, Goldman Sachs. I know Lloyd Blankfein. These CEOs of these private equity companies make dramatically more than the CEOs of these big banks, which were the, the big bad of the days before. I think most people don't even know that these forces exist. I mean, this is definitely not my hill to die on, and I don't know a ton about this, but I 
I don't agree that these are a universally evil thing. You know, 80% of the companies that go private through buyouts are in business 10 years later, and we don't really know what that would have looked like otherwise. Right. These companies yeah. are not generally in good shape when they take on so much debt. They're It's a sort of like their last effort to kind of stay over the water. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, a defense of these equities is that they're going in, they're improving existing companies, they're maximizing them to do more with less, and they're incentivized for them to succeed in the long term, generally, unless they sell them off too soon. And so there's, I mean, there's definitely, definitely corruption and bad eggs, but I would say that there are certainly case studies where after two years, labor productivity te uh, tends to increase by 8% in these companies. And of course, there are sometimes layoffs and pay cuts. But then again, would everyone have lost their job had a private equity company not come in to kind of be that last resort yep. for a struggling company? I don't know. And so I think that there's definitely, there's certainly corrupt cases. I think that talking about buying a company versus talking about buying homes is probably a slightly yeah, different conversation. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. there is a case to be made in defense of these companies. I think saying that they just, just because Toys R Us went out of business means that they're evil. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, researchers at California Polytech State University recently found that about 20% of public companies that go private through these leveraged buyouts go bankrupt within 10 years compared to a control group's 2% bankruptcy rate over the same time period. So these companies, private, these companies that get taken over by private equity firms do seem to have a much higher bankruptcy rate than companies that are getting their money through the public market. Yeah. I mean, I, the criticism is that private equity is stripping them for parts, essentially, like either selling their assets or it has some short-term incentive to mm -hmm. maximize profit. Now, I, I agree with you, Ricky, that the biggest focus here should be on the housing issue, because I do think we as a country have a public policy imperative to keep the costs of housing because it's a limited supply under control. And in 2019, the United Nations issued a report that found Blackstone, which is the, the largest private equity uh, company in the world, that they uh, were undergoing this massive purchasing of single family homes after the financial crisis and that it had, quote, devastating consequences. And the report alleged that Blackstone had abused tenants with exorbitant fees, rent hikes, aggressive eviction practices, and that they used political leverage to undermine domestic laws and policies um, that would have improved adequate housing. And I think this is where I start to think, all right, we need to focus on these companies because people, sometimes they don't even know they exist. Like you may get outbid and a lot of people who are listening may have had the experience of trying to buy a house and then getting outbid by somebody giving above asking price and cash. And when that's happening, you're starting to, to increase the possibility that's not another person on the other end of this thing, but it's a huge institution because how many people really have that kind of cash, right? And so there's some articles that we'll put in the show notes where there are people at real estate uh, investment conferences who are saying it used to be just like all these individual like quirky buyers and we're seeing a larger and larger share coming from these institutions and because they're 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 playing they're swimming in these waters and sometimes we don't even know they're on the other end of a transaction mm -hmm. and it's also worth noting that oftentimes they will get access to um, listings before they even go public so you might not even know that something would have been on the market in the first place yeah and we're gonna get into a world where they're gonna start exchanging these things amongst each other because yeah you know and you know we don't even know right and the biggest thing too is it seems like private equity firms it's in general they get involved in all these different industries that they don't seem to have 
a whole lot of knowledge about because it's all kind of a money thing. You know, for instance, I think one example is the Carlisle Group, which uh, they financed the sale of Taylor Swift's former label, the Big Ma- Big Machine Group, our Big Machine Label Group, and they they're the ones who were basically responsible for selling that to. Uh, well, I didn't even Bronze. know their own. Yeah, I didn't even know. Yeah, yeah. so so th- so so the reason why Taylor Swift couldn't even perform some of her songs for a little bit had to do with a private equity firm. So I'm sure she doesn't really like them. But I mean, but that's the example. They didn't even know what they were getting into when they were doing that. They didn't even know how complicated that would be and and how that would affect you know her music and things like that and so that's another problem with these private equity firms they're getting involved it seems like just for you know to get these quick you know payouts for themselves but they're not even really thinking about the overall metrics quick or of, even let's say it's companies. long-term let's pre- let's be charitable and say it's long-term payouts right it's still you could still have a problem with it and i know then the question is what do you do about it and i think that's the hardest thing yeah but yeah that's sure. my question i don't know how you disrupt the but private market like that take government t- regulation yeah, take the, the taylor swift example for a second right now, it's interesting that you mentioned Big Machine. I lived in Nashville. They were a well-known record label. You know, you'd run into the people who run Big Machine in town. It was a small town back then, and or a small city. There's a, a metaphor here that, to me, reminds me of housing in the sense that I, I suspect, and I could be wrong about this, it's totally speculative, that in a world where it's just Big Machine on one end of this transaction in Taylor Swift, they work out the rights issue there. Yeah. Because it's like a relationship thing, right? That's how I think about rent hikes and individuals too is like I think like if it's like you're I know my landlord I run into my landlord on the street on a daily basis now if I can't make my rent on a given month I'm going to have a much greater chance of being able to talk to him about it and and work something out than if it's this huge company somewhere else that doesn't know my name doesn't care who I am and I'm just like an item on their spreadsheet now I know this might be some idyllic you know world that I'm I'm painting but like that was a world that existed for a long time well I mean, hopefully they don't make these rents too high. But speaking of something else that's kind of high up there in the sky, (laughs) have you ever looked up at the night sky and saw a flying object that looked totally unexplainable? Maybe it was aliens. Maybe it's Maybelline. Or maybe it was China. Congress had a hearing this past week on UFOs, and apparently we don't even call them UFOs anymore. They're now called UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. Now, I could make some joke about Scully and Mulder from the X-Files testifying to Congress, but there are actually some genuine matters of both public interest and national security at play here. So, Ravi, I'm glad to say this isn't the first conversation we've had about aliens on the right. show. Uh, what or the is last. Your, or the and, last. W- and it won't be the last. <laughs> yeah. uh, what is your take on all of this? Well, I really do want to clear the dance floor for you on this one because I know you were looking at these hearings yesterday so i have so little to offer other than i'm just generally pro alien because i'm very skeptical of our <laughs> ability as humans to handle some of the the trends that we've set in motion on this planet so by and large when i hear about the possibility of ufos and, and aliens which i don't know if we want to use that term anymore is there a more politically correct word we uh, can extraterrestrial use beings there is the politically correct uh, nomenclature in are that we particular worried about situation. offending aliens I just, now I just, if they're listening i just want them to know i i, I want to use the proper terminology you're really so, bowing down yeah to these, these I'm ready for aliens. it. Uh, and so, <laughs> well, the set, well, I, I hate to burst your bubble here. They did not really at all get into the uh, possibility of extraterrestrial beings in these hearings. The House Intelligence Committee's subcommittee on counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and counterproliferation. Whoa. Heard testimony Tuesday from mostly defense officials that were basically talking about this unidentified aerial phenomenon. Now, the goal of this hearing wasn't really to talk about aliens, but it was actually to destigmatize the reporting of mm-hmm. UAP because a lot of people in the military, Navy pilots and things like that, they'll see something that they can't explain. And there's always been this, this stigma around it because it's like, 
if I say that I saw a UFO, they're gonna think I'm crazy. Right. And that's like a really big deal in the military. Like if they think you're mentally in any way mentally incapacitated, yeah. you can get you could lose rank, you could get kicked out of the military for that. Right. And so they wanted to destigmatize that. Uh, they wanted to make it basically revise the protocol for when someone in the military sees something unexplainable. And there was some really interesting things that came out of this hearing. Uh, this recent UAP task force has collected nearly 400 reports from just the military of people seeing things that they cannot identify most of this stuff is either airborne clutter some type of natural atmospheric atmospheric phenomenon a lot of it could be actual stuff that the u.s government is testing that someone just didn't know about because you know now i was telling each other these things which is kind of crazy yeah um but you know you know your different levels bureaucracy. of yes, yeah. bureaucracy uh it could be foreign adversary systems which is really scary that's uh, the worst that's case probably the worst case scenario yeah. and there's also an other yeah then. i like other the other is basically things that they just can't figure out or it might be potentially scientific things that we just haven't discovered yet. right yeah this reminds yeah. me of this there's this book called the three-body problem which i think netflix is making into a show or they were i don't know what's happening now but they it's about this scientist who you know gets messages from you know extraterrestrial beings and they basically want to destroy our planet and the scientist has lost because she came out of the cultural revolution in china because she's lost so much faith in humanity she basically helps them now i'm not to be clear i would not help extraterrestrial beings I destroy know, our man. planet i don't know i just think they would be better at running it potentially because it, it's hard to get worse than we are right now so that would be my spin on that i feel book. like most of human history is probably examples of worse leadership yum yeah but maybe some of the scariest things that came out of this hearing was that there have been 11 near misses between these unknown objects and u.s military assets so that's yeah. really scary. It's getting dangerous and yeah. this is coming from like really highly credible people yes. in the military yeah, yeah, yeah. too yes. like it's it's really crazy and a lot of them say like i wouldn't have said anything if it weren't for other people having seen it having too seen it. Yeah. so we have no idea how much like the, what the quantity really is. The scary thing is, right? You were you were telling me this offline that there's like certain propulsion like technology that that the military has now admitted they don't have an explanation for how these objects are moving yes. the way that they are. So the U.S. military has found 18 examples where the objects display no visible propulsion and appear to use technology that is beyond known capabilities of both the U.S. and its adversaries. So that means these things were moving in a way, in some cases, that defied the laws of physics. Mm -hmm. And not only can they not, you know, figure out, you know, where these things come from, they're pretty sure they didn't come from as far as their intelligence tells them something that we know that China has or Russia has right so yeah. if China does have something like that and that's we don't even know it I, so that's like a that's like yeah. a known unknown <laughs> and uh we really you know that could be very terrible for and us. I think I that an interesting aspect of this is that there are some reports where they kind of they say that they look like tic tacs generally like the the shape of these objects hmm. and there's some reports from military people who say like when we kind of went down to like investigate it would start following us and mirroring us so it seems like there's actually it's not just some Thing that's just hmm. existing like there's a level of interaction which is really concerning but the reason that i'm not convinced that it's like a foreign adversary necessarily is because this trope of like the tic-tac shape thing i don't think they had tic-tacs in the 60s but i might not be right about that but there were there were at the t at the time military people describing essentially the same shaped thing mm -hmm. with different analogies for it and i have trouble believing that something that some foreign adversary was so far ahead of us that they were doing this already right. in the sixties. And I, I just think that I, I don't know. That's yeah. not, it's, it's, I don't believe that they're Unless we that brought far in ahead. the definition of foreign adversary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. yeah. Maybe it was something beyond 
Uh, you know what would be the best order. case scenario is like some random country like Iceland has been a hundred years ahead of us all for, for a know. long time. Well, you no, it's, what it's, 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 uh, it's down in Antarctica. There's a yeah. super race of humans yeah. down there and they, yeah. they do a lot of really intelligent, incredible Santa things. Claus. Um, but no, what, one thing I want to end this off on is that it is a, a risk to national security for us to not know what these objects are. So uh, did you say Santa Claus? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Cong- the, the fact that there's a possibility in all seriousness that this is foreign adversaries tells me this is yeah, a good use stuff. of congressional time to figure yeah. this out yeah i would like congress to be able to deal with more than one thing at a time i right. mean sometimes it doesn't feel like they can yeah. but this or seems even like one something thing at one time <laughs> yeah this is true but yeah. this feels like something that's probably good to have on the table absolutely Agreed. well have any of you ever seen a ufo before no I'm not there was a spoof when i was a kid in my in my uh hometown someone sent up some fake ufo and we all talked about it for oh, wow. several days i mean there's got to be a lot of fun happening now with these uh the drones well yeah mm. well, well i have but but i won't won't get into it. Well, I feel like it always happens in, in rural areas. That's what so I'm saying. Like, I feel yeah. like in Alabama mm-hmm. is like, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was it was interesting, but you know, you know, I don't want to be stigmatized. But well, uh, tell, well, tell them I said hi and they know where to find me. Yeah, they don't want to talk to you, <laughs> yeah. Bobby. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> thank you all for listening and watching today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time. <laughs>